Wow, it is so good to see all of you. You, you. you cannot imagine how glad I am that you are here and that I am not preaching to an imaginary um, you know, uh, crowd. It's, it's, it's a different thing to imagine that there is somebody behind those, um, uh, those cameras as when you're preaching to a live audience. So I am very, very pleased to see you all here today. I want you to turn your Bibles now or your uh, device <clears throat> to Mark 13, where we will be spending our, our time, most of our time today, as we break the word, of, the word of God. Mark 13 is an interesting passage because it is similar to Mark, Mark, Matthew 24. It's the, it's the one place in, in, the, in the book, in, in the book of, of Mark that concentrates mainly on what we call as the end, end times or uh, uh, the, the, the magic word or the, the technical term is eschatology, uh, the doctrine of the end times. It goes through the, uh, you know, the, the, a series of things. Um, the whole chapter is filled with it. Of course, we have Matthew 24 to compare it with, and, and there in Matthew 24, we have a much uh, larger um, a version of what we find in Mark 13. But we're going to be spending our time uh, here in Mark 13 today. I've titled our sermon, the sermon today, as The Fire Is Upon Us, Jesus' Call to End Time Living. And as I was thinking about this uh, title, I'm actually reading a book by that title, which uh, talks about um, the, the fire, of, the firestorm that is... Uh, that was brewing and still brewing in our country when it comes to this issue of social justice. But I thought that this, this, um, uh, this title is appropriate for our uh, sermon for today because the fire is literally upon us. Um, as I read, as I've been reading the news this last uh, couple of weeks, I've realized that, we've all realized that, um, you know, that there's ever danger, especially here uh, where we live, of fire engulfing our place and eating up everything in its wake. The news tells us that over 5 million acres um, of land has been ravaged by these wildfires across 12 or 13 states, the majority of which are happening here in California, in Oregon, and in Washington State. That's 7,000 miles all burnt up. And I was reading news this morning, and that equals to about the entire state of Connecticut and the entire country of Wales. That's a pretty sizable, sizable uh, uh, area burnt up. And I was reading some of the um, human interest stories that are so gut-wrenching, like the story of this boy named Wyatt, 12-year-old boy and his dog, and his mom and his um, grandma. The mom made it out of the car, but not Wyatt's and his dog and his grandmother. And they were burnt alive in their car. It's so distressing to even read about things like that. And as I was reading that news, I was thinking about my own kids and my own family and what would happen if fire did come through where we live. It is very, it is very gut-wrenching to be thinking about these things and to be reading about these things in the news. And if we are to focus on these news as we ought to, and within reason, of course, I was just looking at some of the pictures here of the Oregon fire, 10% of the entire population of that state, of 4.1 million, which would be, 10% of that would be around 410,000 or around 500,000 of them have been displaced. Uh, told to leave their houses and they may not be able to go back to a house, a standing house, when they get back after these fires are, are done. Where do we place ourselves? What do we say? What do we do? It seems like, you know, COVID-19 is still here and here on top of that we have to deal with these fires and the, the fear of losing properties and lives, and friends. It is very easy for us to get caught up in, 
and, you know, and all the chatter that we often find this, all this in, in social, social media. I was given, I was a, a friend of mine on Facebook, actually Pastor, uh, Pastor Ferguson, uh, my boss, uh, the assistant to the president, posted this, you know, funny picture of, uh, of the sun on this side and the earth over here. Funny, funny in a way, but it's not funny, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we can laugh even, even in the midst of crisis. Sun over here and the, and the earth over here and California is right over there. And California is red hot. It's burning. It's, it's inching closer. And I just couldn't resist. I couldn't resent uh, making a quip. And I did. And I said, you know, somebody needs to fess up or we're all headed to hell. But it's nothing to laugh at, really. At the end of the day, there's still a lot of suffering going on. We want to find our place in all of this. And, and you know, uh, one of the, one of the uh, most common reactions to, to, to all this is to say, is this one more sign? Is this one more, is this one more sign that Jesus Christ is coming soon? And we find the answer to all of that in Mark chapter 13. Let me give you a little bit of a a context to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, of course, is, is just a couple of um, cha- uh, chapters or three or four chapters away from, from, the, from the ending of the book of Mark, which means that Jesus Christ had already, was already finishing up his, uh, um, his ministry on earth and he's facing the cross and he's getting his, his disciples and by extension you and me ready for what's ahead, what does the future hold, what the future holds for them and for us. When he's gone, after he's died on the cross and after he's resurrected from the dead. And so they go up to the, uh, the city uh, that they all love, the city of Jerusalem. Um, and they see these wonderful, huge rocks cut out from, you know, the sides size of, of mountains and, you know, and, and and taken over to that part of the, of the city and put together and, and into a wonderful edifice called Herod's Temple, which at that time was actually still being rebuilt or built. It wasn't going to be finished until years, only a few years before its own destruction in 70 AD by the Romans. The disciples were all there and they're all, you know, they're, they're walking up to the mount, to the Temple Mount, and they see this beautiful edifice and they say, wow, how magnificent this structure is, uh, this temple is. And Jesus Christ tries to um, tell them to get ready for the worst and not to pin their hopes, not to pin their hopes on anything that is, um, not to pin their hopes on anything that is externally beautiful and, and not to get wrapped up in this kind of, a, kind of a thing because this too is going to be destroyed. And, and so, of course, the disciples wondered what's going to happen. When is this going to happen? And then their minds also gravitated not just to the, to the end of the temple, to the destruction of the temple, but also perhaps to the destruction of humanity and beyond that to the, to the, to the ending of the world. And so they asked this question, in verse 3, follow me along as I go up and down this, uh, this uh, uh, chapter. So verse, in verse 3, we find this, uh, 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 this statement. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the four of them, asked him privately, that is Jesus, tell us when will this be? So it's a two-pronged question. Tell us when will this be? That is what he's describing about the, uh, the destruction of this edifice, this beautiful building. And then the second one is, what will be the sign? Now remember, now, cross, I mean, uh, circle that phrase, the sign. They're asking for a single sign. If there is a, a one sign that we need to know, Lord, before the, the ending of the world, when the world ends, we need to know. We need to know you're, when you're coming in, and we need to be prepared for that. So they ask, the second question is, what will be the sign that all these things are about, all these things that Jesus Christ said are about to be accomplished? Now somebody analyzed all the questions that, Jesus, that, that the disciples or people asked Jesus Christ in the book of Mark um, and, that, and, that, and that they found out that 
Of all the questions that were asked Jesus Christ, he never answers any single one of them except for two. And vaguely at that, he never answers them directly. In other words, he never gives the people the answer that they're looking for. And that is precisely what happens here as well. Because the disciples are asking for the sign, and Jesus Christ gives them no sign at all. But you say, wait a minute, pastor. When you read through the entire uh, 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 chapter of Mark 13, you see all of these signs. No, those aren't signs. And I hate to um, say that, but those really aren't signs. You see, as we study Mark 13, we, we soon realize that the way Jesus Christ answers the questions of his disciples leads us to, to, to believe that Jesus Christ, instead of watching for signs of the end, and even for watching for that one sign of the end that, were, that would usher in the end of the world, God wants us to do something else. And I, wanted to pre- I want to present it to you in quick, three quick jabs here so that you, you have it all, and then we will go through it one by one. Instead of watching for signs of the end, God, or Jesus Christ, wants us instead, first of all, number one, to understand that calamities and upheavals of nature and social upheavals, uh, he wants us to understand, first of all, he wants us to understand them for what they truly are. And what are these, really? These are common occurrences in a world that is already broken and in pain and has been so for a very long time. And that is exactly what uh, um, we find in, in Romans chapter 8, and you remember that I preached on Romans chapter 8 barely five weeks ago, five Sabbaths ago. And here in Romans chapter 8, we, we have the same thing echoed um, by the Apostle Paul when he says in, in verse 22, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains. Now, he speaks of his day. And then he says, uh, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. Now, g- g- get this. So it means that he, uh, uh, Paul is saying that it's been in labor pains before he was born until the time when he wrote this beautiful book called Romans. So all of these things that are happening really are not signs in the, sen- in the sense that they are telling us necessarily that, you know, that Jesus Christ, this is, you know, we're inching closer and closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. Although that is, that is true because literally, really, truly, every day that passes by brings us closer to Jesus Christ's coming, isn't it? Isn't that true? And that because there is nothing written in Scripture that would preclude Jesus Christ from coming today even, that we would have to say that, yes, we would have to affirm that Jesus Christ's coming is imminent. But we would have to also say that Jesus Christ's coming has been imminent for a long time. And that, instead of you and me focusing our eyes on watching for, you know, uh, for, for signs to, to, to unfold, uh, you know, about, about the ending of the world, God wants us to understand, first of all, that calamities and upheavals are common occurrences, once again, in a world that is already broken and has been broken and will continue to be broken and in pain, and in, in, in pain, in the pains of childbirth, according to uh, uh, Paul in Romans chapter 8. It will be that way, not, you know, not just yesterday, not just today, but for the, until the end ending of the world. That's the first thing we need to consider. And then I'll take you to, um, through Mark 13 to, to, to see where those, are, are, those statements are true. Second thing that, we need to cons- that, that Jesus wants us to consider is this. Not only that uh, we need to understand that calamities are common occurrences in a broken and sinful world, but that what he wants us to focus on is this. He wants us to keep our eyes wide open rather than seeing, all, you know, following these calamities and, and you know, and, and um, getting really, really uh, depressed. 
He wants us to look upbeat, to be upbeat, to keep our eyes open for opportunities and, and, and challenges for faithful service despite all of these things. And then lastly, he wants us to stay at our posts at all times by staying close to Jesus and by discerning how best to keep our witness going despite all the difficulties that we, that we encounter. And there are many difficulties, even more so now, and more so in the future. So let's, let's take a look at the first one. Is it really what Jesus Christ is saying to us that we ought to be more concerned about other things rather than watching for the end to, re- to really end? Let's take a look at, uh, go back to, uh, to that text once again, Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter, uh, chapter 13. We will notice that um, <clears throat> all the things that Jesus Christ gives in, Ma- in, in this chapter essentially it encapsulates what would be happening to you and me. It's as if what he's done is that he's, he looked at the life of his disciples in their generation, encapsulized everything that was going to happen in their generation, and said to, and says, and, and, and now Jesus Christ is saying to us, what happened, what's, what happened to my disciples in the days of my apostles, in their generation, is similar to what you will be going through, what every generation will be going through to the ending of the world. And what are those? And what are, what are those? We find, first of all, in, in the verses, in verses 5, uh, which begins Jesus' response to, uh, to the end of verse 8, we find these challenges. Verse 5, Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware, that's the word, by the way, be discerning, blepete, be able to see beyond the surface of things, he's asking them. And he says that actually four times in this, in this chapter. Be discerning, be truly discerning. Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And then he echoes what, uh, what Paul says in Romans 8.22. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. That is to say, not just these things are beginnings of the birth pangs, but everything he says are really just part of that. Part of that, the heaving, uh, as it were, of, of creation, because creation needs a new start, and that new start has already been ushered in because of the, of, of the death and of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you know that in the entire New Testament scripture, that the, end of, that the beginning of the end, or what we normally call here as Adventist, Adventist lingo, as the end times or the, the time of the end, started at the first coming of Jesus Christ? Where do we find this? Well, let me lead you to three quick places in Scripture that says this. That the end time started not at the, at the culmination of some prophecy, even if those prophecies are still relevant in some other ways, I'm not here to discredit those things. But what I'm saying is, is this, that the end time started, the time of the end started with Jesus Christ when he arrived here on earth for the very first time and, and he ushers in this, this new state of affairs called new creation. And especially when he died on the cross and when, when the Father resurrected him from the, de- from the dead, then then new creation, that era of new creation has already begun. And that the um, culmination or the complete ushering in of that new creation will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's look at three quick um, verses that tells us, that affirms to us uh, that the end time really did start with the, coming of, the first coming of Jesus Christ. I want to lead you to uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Go to your Bibles, if you please, to Hebrews 1, verse 2. Long ago, 
God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. Verse 2, now get this. But in these last days, in these last days, when was he writing this? Who was he writing this to? To the first century Christians. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. Another text is one in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Paul says, These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the end of the ages have come. And last but not, but not least, and we know this text very well because it's an application. It's an application of an Old Testament prophecy, Joel's prophecy about the end time. And it was applied by the writer of Acts, who was Luke. He's, he was applying it to the, to the Pentecost. Verse 17, he's quoting now, he's quoting uh, well, let's, let's begin with verse 16. He's quoting the prophet Joel, uh, Luke is, in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Verse 17. In the last days, it will be God, it will be, God declares, that I will put or I will pour my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and so on and so forth. And of course, if you read that text once again, it is referring specifically to, it may not be referring only to, but it's specifically referring to, in this, in this reading, to um, the time of the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the Pentecost. So you see, the end has been here for a long time, for at least 2,000 years. And it will continue, it will continue until Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ comes in the clouds of heaven. So now we go back to the, first, uh, to the second question of the disciples, but when will that be, Lord? I want to know, we want to know. Wouldn't that be a lot nicer if we knew when Jesus Christ was, was going to come. And Jesus Christ refuses to answer that question. And he even goes, uh, goes, to, uh, uh, goes to the extent of saying, I don't know. I really don't. And we find that in, um, in Mark chapter 13, verse, um, uh, let's see, where is it now? Um, verse 32 and 33. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, he says. And then he repeats that, uh, that word beware or be discerning. Be discerning. Stay awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Yes, these upheavals of nature, and we will see a lot more of them, some of them are human costs, yes, I'm, I'm sure, we're, we're sure of that. Um, even the fires that we're experiencing now are partly caused by, the, uh, um, you know, by, by a lot of things, both human and non-human costs. Um, I'm not the expert there. It's, do I see? Ah, oh, Dave is here. I wish I could just interview Dave, uh, but uh, we don't have time today. Dave, glad to see you here. Um, and even famines, famines that are mentioned here in this text, are not altogether just, uh, you know, just uh, um, upheavals of nature. They can also be caused by human beings. I remember years ago reading an article about, you all remember, how many of you were old enough to remember the Ethiopian famines of the 1980s? Um, I was just a teenager back then, and I, when I started seeing all of these, you know, the, 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 the sorry sight of, sad sight of these boys and girls and their parents just barely alive and skin and bones. Um, and um, so I thought, you know, what could have caused this famine to happen? And, and so I read an article uh, not too long ago that says that part of the reason why there was such great famine in that land was because of the policies that, were, that was pursued or that were pursued by their government of the day. 
which included deforestation, which included forced, far, forced collectivization of farming, and all those things, which forced people to, you know, in, into dire situations where they were literally dying left and right. The same thing happened in China in the 1960s, collectivization. So, same thing happened in, you know, in, the, in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, 1930s. Collectivization of farming and everything. They're trying to see, you know, they're trying to experiment and see, see how, can we, how can we make these, these you know, people be a lot more productive than they are so we could have this plenty. Well, it backfired on them. 20, over 20 million Chinese citizens died in that great famine of, uh, as a result of the of the, the Cultural Revolution. And for as long as policies like that are followed or are repeated, you, we will see a lot of these things happening. They will continue to happen. And the sooner we realize, the sooner we come to grips over the, over the fact that these are common occurrences in the sense that they will keep on happening, the easier it will be for us to take our eyes somewhere else to a better place so that you and I could truly be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. It is not watching over these things that will help us be ready. It is watching for other things that will help us be ready. Which leads us to the second point, that what, instead of watching for signs of the end, what Jesus Christ really wants us to do is to keep our eyes wide open and to look beneath the surface of events and see how these events bring about challenges and opportunities for you and me to fulfill or to, to have a full accounting of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ to the world around us. So instead of looking at these events as something, uh, something that would cause us to lose, lose hope, Yes, they are sad. Yes, we, we, we mourn with those that lose loved ones and properties. Yes, we want to do, we want to help them, all of these things. But the key thing that, that Jesus Christ wants us to, to, to see is this, that these are challenges and opportunities, also opportunities for us to give to God a full accounting of our faith to find ways in which we could contribute to the goals and the purposes of God in the midst of this pain and in the midst of the, these birth pangs that our world is going through. It's the same thing that Paul says once again, going back to, Revelation, I mean, to Romans chapter 8. It's the same thing when, he's, when he says, you know, uh, you know, the whole creation groans and we groan like, uh, we groan with creation. We cannot be, we cannot, you know, we cannot help but groan with creation because we are part of it. We are affected by it. Some of us even die in these fires. Some of us will be burnt alive. But he says there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity in every single, uh, you know, event that we see. There's an opportunity for witness. There's an opportunity for service. There's an opportunity to give people hope. And not the least of those opportunities is showing what it's like to suffer and suffer well. And that's what Paul says to us in Romans, Romans 8, if you remember from a few uh, weeks ago. We know that the whole creation, going back there in verse 22, has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption and the redemption of our bodies, he says. And, and guess what? He says, if you groan like that, guess who's going to be groaning with you as well? You will never groan alone. The Holy Spirit groans with you with words unutterable that only he and God the Father would understand. He would make our witness exponentially go beyond the reach we could ever hope and imagine. And so we find in verse 9, let me go back to uh, Mark 13, verse 9. 
Look at these opportunities, it says. You know, if you look at all of these calamities and upheavals of nature, society, and there are many of them, I'm not going to mention them, you know them. We all know them. We're kind of in the thick of them right now. We, especially if we're into social media a lot and we get to see all of these, all of these you know, back and forth and everything, as I do. Verse 9, and he says, As for yourselves, beware. That's the second time he repeats that word. Be discerning. He says, For they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings before, because of me as a testimony to them. And then he says, verse 10, And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations, when they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not uh, worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing that Paul is saying once again. If we are willing to be the, con the conveyors, the purveyors, the channels of God's grace from him to, to us and to us, through us, to those around us, then the opportunities will come. Will, they will arise. They will, they will come. You know, you, and and, and our, our task is to not so much watch for the signs of the end, but for watch for the opportunities, for the opportunities that may come because we don't want to miss those opportunities where we can help others and we can extend to them the grace of God and the love of God. That's what we ought to be focusing on. He says, brother will betray brother to death. And he says, you, you, you do all these things and you're going to do, you're going to be, I'm not asking you to witness for me under the most benign circumstances. I'm, I'm asking you to witness for me under the most trying of circumstances. But you know what? You have the Holy Spirit with you. I will send him to you. He will exponentially grow your, your, the value of your witness, your renown. He will exponentially grow your um, you're renowned to, to the whole world or to those around you. Brother will betray brother to death and a, fa a father his child and children will rise against parents and have, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the focus ought to be because God has decreed he has decreed that the gospel, his gospel must first be preached as a prerequisite for the end time, or for the ending of the world. Then our task needs to be, what can I do to help out in that regard? That's the focus. And God will find ways for you. Remember how we translated Romans chapter 8, verse uh, I can't help but go, going back, go, go back there again and again. Remember uh, the, the, the translation that I offered um, in verse, Romans, Romans 8, verse 28. For we know that in all things, God, in order to bring about that which is good, works with or cooperates with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He is calling on all of you and me to be partners with him in making sure not so much that we, partners and not partners not in watching for the end, of the end of the world when it will come no partners in making sure that the gospel goes out to everyone and that we are part of that great purpose of God and that our lives our lives are the very conduit of God in, in making sure that that uh, purpose grand purpose is carried on to the, to the very end. So instead of watching for signs of the end, God wants us to understand, wants us to understand that calamities and upheavals are common occurrences, and that not only are they common occurrences, there are also opportunities for us to rise up and witness. And last, it, Jesus Christ wants us to stay so close to Jesus Christ. To, to, you know, to, um, to well, let, let me just put it this way. Um, the words that he used, the phrase that he used is keep awake. 
keep awake. He says it three times in this chapter, and he says it from verse 32 to verse 37. Uh, in verse 33, he says, beware, or that is, be discerning, keep alert, or, you know, keep awake, that's the same thing. Um, that's the word uh, gregoreo, which means, you know, just, just be, be, be active, or uh, I guess what it's trying to, 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 to communicate here is this. If he was trying to communicate by saying beware, uh, that we, our eyes need to be wide open, what he's trying to communicate with this phrase keep awake, or Gregoreo, is to stay or to um, stay at your post at all times. Stay at your post at all times. In other words, stay awake in order to, you know, keep your post. Don't, don't sleep on your post, at your post. Don't sleep or don't go, you know, don't, don't walk away. Don't run. Stay where you are. Let me jump uh, to verse 32, okay? And then I'll lead us back to verse 14. I'll show you how those, those two parts uh, are connected to each other. Verse 32, But about that day or hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, verse 33, keep, keep alert, uh, for you do not know when the time will come. Verse 35, Therefore keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow, etc. Verse 37, And what I say to you, I say, I say to all, keep awake. And you know, keep awake is not something about, it has nothing to do with um, uh, keeping awake in, in, in order for you to start, you know, to, to keep uh, looking at the, the signs. No. Keep awake, really. If there's one place where we understand keep awake, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because that is the only place in the entire New Testament scripture where, where Jesus Christ tells us what, it, what, it, what does it mean to really, uh, when, when he says to us, Gregorete, stay awake. And he means really, he doesn't mean stay awake so you could, you could look you know, at, at the unfolding, look at the news. You know, and, and so, no, he, 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 he says that in reference to a couple of things. Number one, it's in reference to staying with him keeping up with him. That is to say, stay awake, stay with me. Keep close to me. Do what I do. And what was he doing in, in Gethsemane? He was praying. And then he says, uh, you know, not only stay with me, but he's, you know, he's, he's telling them to do whatever it takes to keep, to stay at their post so they don't sleep at their post or they don't walk away from their post. Stay at your post close to Jesus. Stay at your post discerning how best to keep your witness going at any given time in your life. And here's where we go back to Revelation to, to, to Mark 13, verse 14. Because it tells us to be discerning when it comes to how we can, you know, we can witness for Jesus Christ. There are times when witness means we must give our lives to Jesus Christ. There are times when our witness means we must run away. But not from witnessing, but we must run away from a situation or keep our distance or not be so married to a place, or to an idea, to an ideology perhaps even. Whatever it is that may keep you stationary in one place, when that place is being burnt up or that place is being judged or that idea is being burnt up, in some metaphoric way. When that, you know, whatever it is, he says, you need to be, you need to have, first of all, you need to have the ability to be able to say, that's not where God wants me to be. I need to flee now so that I could continue my witness somewhere else. It's not, a, it's not fleeing in order to run away from anything. It's, it's repositioning. It's repositioning yourself so that you can continue what God wants you to do in your life. And this is exactly what he, he, he tells us, starting with this, you know, the, the desolating of sacrilege that, that, that he talks about in, in verse 14 and onwards to, the, to verse 20, 23. Let's read. But when you see the desolating sac sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. That's the word again. You know, be discerning. Then those in Judea replace that word with, word, you know, Whatever place, situation, idea 
that 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 you know that that you, that you might be might be gravitating uh, around or towards and in the you know in the in the context of the, the disciples it was Jerusalem the center of their lives the pride and joy of every Jew that great city and not just that great city that great temple that was such a great cause for their national pride, for their, you know, for their, um, you know, for, uh, for their identity, even. And Jesus Christ cautions them even before we get to chapter 13 and chapter 12 and chapter 11. He says, you know, don't get caught up in all of that as Christians. This world is not your home. Don't get caught up in any of that. So that you start to think and you start to, you, you start to, uh, to, to not only think, but also to, uh, to start, you start to sound like those, you know, whatever those ideas and places want you to think and say. Don't be married to any, anything that would cause you to not want to flee when you really need to flee so you could continue your witness somewhere else. So he talks about it. He, he talks about the, um, um, the, you know, in the context of the, of, of the Jews in the day, about the destruction of the one city that, had, that, was, that was the center of, of their lives, of even the, the Christians' lives, the center of their identity, the temple, which was the center of their identity, And he says to them, the one, verse 15, on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter, for in those days there will be suffering, such as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now. No and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens. They're the ones that will tell you these signs, not Jesus. And you know who are these false messiahs? It would be so much easier. Uh, you know, I used to think that the false messiahs are those that are saying, Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. Come follow me. That would be the easiest thing to, to spot, right? I, I wish false messiahs were that easy. They're never that easy. Because you remember when I preached about the, um, uh, the, the trumpets in the book of Revelation. And also not just the trumpets, but the, the land beasts and the sea beasts that the messiahs are more embedded in the structures and in the ideas than they are about one person, per se. And it's harder to spot those, especially because we become part of the structures. And when we become part of the structures, it will be very hard for us to leave when God tells us to leave. Babylon has fallen, we say. And we're breathing Babylon every moment of the day. But in order for us to be able to stay at our post and keep our witness alive to the very end of our days or until Jesus comes, either one of the two, which one, whichever one comes first. In order for us to really stay at our post, we need to stay close to Jesus and we need to be discerning of what might be out there that would be causing us to be so wedded to certain things that we cannot keep our witness going. We want to stay there and just die over there in front of the temple that we so love. I'm like, what is pastor saying now? I mean, I, I, can't, I don't understand. It's too abstract. Let me, show, let me show you, and then I'm going to end with this one. I was reading, and I was sharing this with my wife. We were having 
you know, discussion about, oh, not discussion, I told her about this when I read it. It's, it's, a, um, it's an article I picked up from Adventist Today, I mean, not Adventist Review. Um, okay, where is it? Oh, there it is. And um, I'm talking now about, you know, about temple and, uh, you know, our, our, how susceptible we are to, you know, being influenced by ideas and, and stuff like that. And we, a lot of times we don't, even, I, we don't even know if we should be running away from anything because we don't know that we're in danger. We don't know that whatever it is that we have gravitated around is already being condemned by God. So this article, um, title, the title of the article, and you can read this when you go home, just uh, Google it. Social media is sucking the life out of us. That's one temple I'd like to discuss a little bit, because I'm every bit part of that myself. It's very addicting. You know, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, when you're done with your, you find your thumbs just going like this. They want to do something. And your will is shot, and it's late at night, and you just, I just want to, I just, it's one o'clock in the morning, and I'm still awake, and I, I get up, I just want, I just want, I want to, I want to have my top ramen, and I want to, I want to browse. And, you know, my thumbs are, are, you know, doing things I don't want it to do. <laughs> I'm just teasing, but, you know, <laughs> it does happen sometimes. So this, this article says, social media is sucking the life out of us, an insightful look at a powerful behavior modification system called the social media. And, he, and here, in this article, the, the, the author, the writer, talks about a, um, a, um, a tech, uh, technology guru by the name of Jerron Lanier, who lives in Berkeley, California. Apparently, he is called uh, in, 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 in the tech uh, world, in the Silicon Valley, as a, a man who cares a lot about other people. He's a computer scientist. He's also, he's also called a prophet to the Silicon Valley. And um, he, he says that um, when social media was invented around the year 2000, that the, you know, the, um, the big companies like Facebook and Google and, and, Google and Twitter, mostly, made a, a, a drastic mistake, which I'm not sure if they're, still, if they're regretting it now, but it's regrettable now after 20 years. And that is that, um, um, let, me, let me read just a couple of, couple of paragraphs here to try to describe it to you because I'm struggling on my own to do it. Um, all right, here it is. As an aside, I was listening, I'm now quoting, I was listening to and reading some of Jerron Lanier's what Jenner Lanier says. I was waiting to hear him use theological terminologies to talk about evil, and I have not yet heard him utter a single word that sounds like that, he says. Although I had understood some of what is behind social media, Lanier said something in a TED Talk that helped me understand better what we're dealing with. He said he doesn't think of social media as social media. He thinks of it as a giant behavior modification system built on a Pavlovian model of reward and punishment that's extremely addictive. I wonder why, I've wondered why, you know, my thumbs do that. But not only is it addictive, it's also subject to algorithms. And algorithms tend to reward whatever gets a greater human response and eliminate what gets a lesser response. And you know why. The more human response you get, the more money they make. So what these algorithms have accomplished in 20 years is to unwittingly identify that huge mistake made by those tech entrepreneurs such as Zuckerberg and Dorsey. The algorithms they set in motion identify the strongest human responses and amplify them and amplify them and amplify them. And guess what those strongest human responses are fear and hate. You wonder why we have Black Lives Matter versus 
whatever else you have on the right side. I continue. Lanier pointed out one particular loop that he finds very distressing. He pointed to the way that Black Lives Matter became so well-known so quickly through social media a few years ago. And then he points to the response to it, a response that is becoming highly amplified, the spread of white supremacy and other kinds of hate. He said that social media introduces these completely opposing groups in society to each other and then ratchets up their conflict to make more profit. That's the nature of algorithm. It's science. It's just science. It's, it's amoral, but it's accomplishing something that's really immoral. So you ever wonder why you start surfing the net and, or you go to YouTube and you, 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 know, you type on something, you watch it, and then pretty soon, God forbid, if you should, if you should start watching a video that says the world is flat. You watch that video, one video, and all of the, all of the uh, other videos that were ever made about, you know, the world is flat will pop up. And pretty soon you start living in that world, in your own, in your own temple. And you surround yourself, you think that is reality. That is your reality, and you start defining yourself according to that great edifice. And when Jesus Christ says, that great edifice will not stand the test of time, that great edifice will burn, it will be destroyed, I will destroy it myself in my own time. When I do, how in the world are you going to be able to run? You wouldn't even think to run away from it if you didn't think your, your life is in danger. It is far more complicated. I, I wish it were any easier to just show us that one sign, Lord, and we will be ready. Or even several signs, and we will be ready. No. It's not like that in real life. No. Because what God wants us to do really is not so much to watch for signs as for, to watch, to keep our eyes open and to stay at our post. He commands us against watching for signs and he commands us instead to discern the challenges and the opportunities for faithfulness and service whether it means to lay our lives down or to run away, it's all for the same purpose. How do we serve the purposes of God to the very end of our days? Until Jesus comes or until we lay our lives down and rest before Jesus Christ, whichever comes first. It doesn't matter. That is how Jesus Christ wants us to live our lives as we see these fires approaching. And as we see the ravages of this pandemic continuing. And as, and as we remember all the things that happened to us 17 years ago and all the things that we, 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 we look forward to, something similar or even worse will happen. I guess just expect it and always be thinking of what you can do, we all can do, to remain faithful to God and to be part of his great program of preaching the gospel first before he allows his end of this world to come to an end.